Praise God. Today we are launching a new series and we are looking at the book of Romans. We are going to study the book of Romans. And the theme of our message series is the righteousness of God, great God, wonderful salvation. The book of Romans has powerfully impacted the Christian church and great influencers in church history like St. Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Wesley have all resourced their theological energies from a fresh encounter with Romans and God has used this book to transform lives of many and shape world history. Now what makes this book so powerful? It's because it is all about the gospel. It is all about the gospel that changes lives. Now what is the gospel? You see, the gospel means good news. It's a combination of two words in Greek. You meaning good, and then angelion meaning announcement, message, or, use, or news. So gospel literally means good news. Now here is the outline of Paul's letter to the Romans. There's the introduction, and then the gospel of the righteousness of God received by faith, and then there's God's power of God for salvation, and then there's the gospel in relation to Israel and the Gentiles, and then God's power to transform our lives. Romans has been called the Apostle Paul's magnus opus, or his theological masterpiece. We can say that it is Paul's dissertation about the gospel. And because of this characteristic, there are great dangers in reading this book, particularly the tendency to focus on, only on its rich theology. And as we study Romans, we have to be careful not to commit that mistake, and focusing only on learning the truth but not applying it in our lives. So remember, the book of Romans is both theological and practical, so we have to be careful to apply its truth in our lives. Paul himself highlighted the importance of obedience in the first chapter and then the last chapter of Romans. Look at these passages in Romans chapter 1 and 16. Chapter 1 verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. And as Paul ends his letter praising God, he again mentioned the importance of obedience. Chapter 16, verse 26. But now it is manifested, and by the scripture, the prophets, according to the command of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Again, here's the point. As we study the book of Romans, let us balance theological truth with practical obedience. Now, let's go to our text in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And this section is the opening of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And particularly, it follows the standard or the standard format of letter writing during ancient times. And here is that standard of letter writing. There's an introduction and then there's greetings where the writer identifies himself and his target audience. And then there's a prayer and blessing and thanksgiving. And then the body of the letter. And then the final greetings and farewell. So these elements can be seen in the whole letter of Romans. Now for, our, for today, we will go over the first of the two elements. The introduction and then the prayer and blessing. And then particularly the introduction to the body. Now the title of our passage today is God's Good News. And we'll look at chapter 1 verses 1 to 7. And I invite you to open your Bibles with me and follow along. Now, here's what we look at, the introduction, thanksgiving, and the theme of the letter. Now, to summarize our lesson for today, here is our key lesson. 
Jesus Christ is the goodness of God. He is the real King, the rightful Lord, and the true Son of God. Therefore, let us not be ashamed of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes in Him by faith. Let's read that again. Jesus Christ is the goodness of God. He is the real King, the rightful Lord, and the true Son of God. Therefore, let us not be ashamed of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes in Him by faith. Now, let's go to the first part, the introduction. Let me read verse 1 and verse 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Then we jump to verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This introduction, actually the whole uh, verses 1 to 7, this introduction tells us that the writer of this letter is the Apostle Paul and that he wrote to the Christians in Rome, which is the capital of the Roman Empire at that time. And he greets them with his various, his favorite uh, standard of greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the original Greek, the first seven verses is one long sentence. And in, particularly in this part, Paul wrote very formal. Why? Because Paul was writing to a church he did not start and a church which he never visited. Now we are not sure how the church in Rome began, but we can say that in Acts chapter 2, it tells us there were visitors from Rome who attended the day of Pentecost. So it is possible that these Jews who were converted during the Pentecost brought the gospel to the Rome, uh, brought the gospel to Rome and started the church there. Now in his introduction, Paul immediately talked about the gospel and tells us four things about it. It's about the servant of the gospel, the source, the subject, and the scope of the gospel. Let's look at this one by one. First, the servant of the gospel. Paul himself introduced that he is a bond servant or a slave of Christ. His work and life revolved around the gospel. Paul identifies himself as a slave. During that time, as a slave, it means that you are considered a possession or property of someone, or you are a property of your master. And so by referring to himself as a slave of Christ, Paul says that he belongs to God and Jesus is his master. It is not Paul who determines what he will say or do. Instead, God's sovereign decision determines who he is and what he must do. Now, Paul also called, was called to be an apostle, meaning sent one. Christ commissioned him. And for what reason? So that he would be set apart for the gospel of God. God has set apart Paul to preach the gospel, particularly to the Gentiles. And look what, what he said in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul was set apart for the gospel. Interestingly, Paul also is a Pharisee. And the word Pharisee means one who is separated. In the time of Jesus and Paul, the Pharisees separated themselves from anything or anyone that is impure or unclean, including the Gentiles. And if Paul is using a play of words here, it is a way of saying that he is now a different kind of Pharisee from what he used to be. Before he came to know Christ, Paul had been a Pharisee separated from the Gentiles, but after God called him, Paul is now separated for the Gentiles. Next, Paul tells us about the source of the gospel. Although Paul is the messenger of the good news, the source of the gospel is not Paul. Verse 1 to 2, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. 
it is a gospel, not from Paul, but it is a gospel of God. Paul tells us that his source is God himself. And furthermore, this gospel is not new. God promised it long ago through the prophets in the scriptures. Now, what do we mean by scriptures? This is scriptures that Paul refers to is the one written. He refers to the Old Testament, the whole book of the Old Testament. Paul says that the gospel was promised and predicted by God all the way back to the times of the Old Testament. And Paul wants to show his reader that there is a continuity with the Old Testament. In other words, Paul connects this gospel with his, historical, with his history as a Jew. And throughout the book of Romans, we can see that Paul is trying to show a continuity and discontinuity of the Old Testament and the Christian faith. And as we move forward in our study of Romans, we will find out why is this important. Next, Paul tells his reader the subject of the gospel. Verse 3, this gospel is concerning God's Son. The gospel of God concerning God's Son. The focus of the gospel is the Son of God. And who is that? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the subject of the gospel is not a what, but a who. In other words, the center of the gospel is not a set of doctrines. The heart of the gospel is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, the gospel is not primarily about us, but it is all about our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 3 to 4, Paul then teaches about the two natures of Jesus, his divine nature and human nature. First, his human nature. Paul said that Jesus was born as a descendant of King David. And here, Paul highlights Jesus' humanity. Jesus fulfilled God's promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and the rule of this Davidic king would last forever. Next, Paul tells us about the divine nature of Christ. Jesus was declared the Son of God by the power of his resurrection from the dead. Now, this statement might confuse us because it says here, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, it may give us that wrong impression, and we may ask, did Jesus only become the Son of God after his resurrection from the dead? Of course not. The Greek word for declared is horizo, from which we derive the word horizon. It means to distinguish, and just as the horizon clearly is a clear demarcation line that divides the earth and the sky. The resurrection of Christ clearly distinguishes him from the rest of humanity. So Paul is saying here that the empty tomb removes all doubt that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God and that the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is divine. Now, what does it mean to be the Son of God? You see, Jesus used this title to refer to himself almost 30 times in the gospel. And by using this title, Jesus was making himself equal with God. Look at these verses. Jesus said, My father is always working, and so am I. And the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, for he not only broke the Sabbath, but he called God his father. And uh, consequently, he is the son of God, and therefore making himself equal with God. And then the religious leader all said, are you the son of God then? And Christ answered them, answered, yes, I am. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And they accused Jesus of blasphemy. But here's the point. Christ is the son of God. And because Christ has risen from the dead, he displayed his divine nature and proved that he is God. As one author said, the evidence of Jesus' humanity is his human birth. The evidence of his deity 
is his resurrection from the dead. You see, the gospel is about Jesus Christ who fulfills God's promise in the Old Testament, and Christ is the Son of God who has both human and divine nature. Now, before we continue, let me give you some historical context to help us better appreciate what Paul is saying here. You see, when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, Rome was considered the greatest city in the world. The Romans called it the eternal city because they believed Rome would last forever. Also, Roman emperors uh, at the time, Rome is a home to the most powerful man in the world, and that is the Roman emperor Caesar. And one of the official title of Caesar is Son of God. And Roman emperor, uh, the Roman emperors combined the concept of the good news with emperor worship. You see, a stone was recovered in Western Turkey with this inscription in it, that the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel. That's the beginning of the good news that, of Gelion for the world that came by reason of him. You see, Caesar Augustus was the first one who labeled his birthday as the good news. It is, he is saying that it, his birth is the beginning of the gospel or good news, and his birth ushered his kingdom that would bring peace and salvation to his people. So that is his claim. And for those who pledge loyalty to Caesar, they must publicly proclaim that Caesar is Lord. So this is the background, the context. Caesar is the son of God and he is Lord and his birthday is the good news and Rome is the eternal city. But then here is Paul. Paul writes his letter to the Romans and he tells them that he is the one bringing the true and real good news. And this good news does not come from the Roman emperor, but from God himself. And the focus of this good news is not Lord Caesar, who claims to be the son of God. Instead, Paul's gospel is about Jesus Christ, the real Lord, the rightful king, and the true son of God. And that is the good news that Paul is preaching. Next, the scope of the gospel. Verses 5 to 6. Through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that this gospel about Jesus Christ is not just local news, but it is a global news. And the scope of the gospel is universal. Yes, the gospel is for the Jews, but it's not only for them. The gospel is also for the Gentiles. So you see, the Jews consider themselves as the chosen race, from their point of view, they view themselves at, that they were the ex exclusively God's people, but the, Jew, but the Gentiles or the non-Jews were not. But here, Paul affirmed that God also chose the Gentiles. And Paul also says that his work as an apostle is a grace from God. It is a privilege. And for whose sake is it? It is for God's sake, for his name's sake, meaning it is to bring glory to God's name. And this privilege is not only given to Paul, but to all of us today. So Paul says, we have received this grace, and that grace includes us. Now, what is the purpose of this grace that God has called us to do? Verses 5 to 6, to bring about the obedience of faith. As mentioned earlier, the importance of obedience and applying the truth in our lives. God's grace calls us to bring everyone to the obedience of faith. Obedience is the goal. Now, does this mean that we, have to, we need to have both faith and obedience to be saved? Not at all. Paul is talking about obedience that comes from faith. In other words, faith is the root of salvation and obedience is the fruit. 
As Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. True faith will bring about obedience. Now, let's go to the next part of Paul's letter, which is thanksgiving. In this section, we will find out two things, why Paul is thankful and why he longs to visit the church in Rome. Verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, why is Paul thankful? Here, Paul expresses his gratitude to God for the believers in Rome. Why? Because even though Paul never have known them or he had never visited this church, he had heard many stories about their faith and the testimony of the church in Rome is so strong that it was being reported throughout the whole empire. And Paul also tells the Roman Christians that he's been praying for them. And particularly one of his prayers that he would be finally able to visit them. Apparently, he tried several times to go to Rome, but his plans had not been successful. And that is part of God's sovereignty as well. Now, so what's, what is Paul's reason for longing to visit the church in Rome? He gives us these reasons. First, I long, he said, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. In other words, Paul wants to equip the church and minister to them. Even though the Roman Christians were already living examples of having obedience that comes from faith, Paul still wants to visit them so that he can use his spiritual gifts to further establish them and equip them. Second reason, and this is something amazing, Paul longs to visit Rome so that he can also experience mutual encouragement. Paul wants to see them, not just to bless them, but also to be blessed by the Roman Christians. And the third reason, verse 12, I long to see you that I may be encouraged. So this is part of the mutual encouragement. But the third reason why Paul longs to visit Rome is also to evangelize. And that's what we see in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that Often I have planned to come to you so that I may obtain some fruit among you also. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome, hoping that he will reap a harvest of souls there. Why? Verse 14 tells us, Paul says, I am obligated both to the Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and foolish. And that is Paul's way of saying that the gospel is for everyone, regardless of your ethnic background, your intellectual abilities, or whatever your status in life is. And now here's one more reason why Paul desires to visit Rome. We find this near the end of Paul's letter in chapter 15. He would like to ask for their support and financial assistance. Paul says, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I've been preaching in these places, but now I have finished my work in these regions per pertaining to the, others, uh, to the places near Jerusalem and to the surrounding areas. But now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome. And after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. But... Paul is saying this is his mission that he needs to finish first. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. And then afterwards, I will go uh, to Spain, but I will stop over Rome. That is what Paul is saying here. You see, during his third missionary journey, Paul collected donations from the Gentile churches to help the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Paul did this to help the two groups, the Jews and the Gentile church, to help them become closer to each other. 
And Paul tells the Roman Christians that he planned to do missionary work in Spain. And Paul wants to visit the church in Rome because he needs the church who could partner with him. In other words, Paul hopes that the church in Rome would support him in his ministry as his partner and Rome would serve as, a, as his base of operation in his mission work. You see, in Paul's time, there's no, more mission, there's no mission organizations like OMF or SIL from which he could ask for help and sponsorship. So Paul has to go directly to the Christian churches for ministry support. Next, let's go to the third part, which contains the theme of the whole letter. Verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Through these two verses, Paul tells his reader the summary of the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And these verses contain the central theme of the entire book. Before we look into this gospel summary, let us look at Paul's three I am statements in this passage. First, he says, I am obligated. Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Now, what does Paul mean when he says he is obligated to preach the gospel to everyone? Let me illustrate. You see, I can be obligated or indebted to someone in two ways. One way is this. If someone lends me 1,000 pesos, I am obligated to that person until I pay him back, right? That's, my, that's the first. But here's another way. If someone gives me 1,000 pesos to pass on to you, then I am obligated to you until I give you that 1,000 pesos. And that is what Paul is talking about here. God saved Paul and he commissioned him to preach the gospel to others. God told Paul, this is the gospel, you give it to them, you give it to the Gentiles. And so for Paul, he owes people the gospel, particularly the Gentiles. And next, Paul said in verse 15, I am eager. I am eager. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. The word there means willing and ready. You see, it is one thing to have a sense of obligation to share the gospel, but it's another thing to be eager to do it. And Paul had this sense of duty, but he was also eager and willing and ready to share the gospel. And third, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed. You see, when it comes to the gospel of God, Paul is obligated, eager, and not ashamed. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. Paul is obligated, eager, and not ashamed. Now, why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel in the first place? For one, the gospel is shameful to the Jews because it talks about a crucified Savior. You see, for the Jews, anyone who is hanged on the tree is cursed. And since the gospel focuses on Christ, for the Jews, it is something shameful. The gospel is also shameful to the Romans. They conquered the Jews and they invented crucifixion and reserved it only for the worst kind of criminals. So why would they put their faith on a Jew who was crucified? What's the good news about that? And the gospel is also offensive and shameful to human pride because it tells us that we are sinners. And worse, we can never be good enough to earn our salvation. But Paul tells us here why he is eager and not ashamed of the gospel. And in the process, he gives the summary of the gospel in verse 17. It says, For in it, 
In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. First, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel is God's power. It is God's power. Who would be ashamed of power? Everyone loves power. The Romans build themselves on power and boast of it. And here, Paul does not say that the gospel brings power or has power. Instead, he says that the gospel itself is power. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, and he is the power of God manifested in the flesh. And Christ himself demonstrated his power through his work while he was still on earth. Matthew 11:5 it says, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now think about it. Christ's resurrection from the dead is the ultimate sign of power that defeat the might of Caesar. Yes, the Roman Empire used death and, as their ultimate weapon to intimidate and crush their enemies, but Christ has conquered death once and for all by his resurrection power. Secondly, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it results in salvation. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is salvation to everyone. The gospel of Jesus saves sinners, and it does not matter how sinful you are. When the gospel is preached, God's power to save is released, and we see God's power in the gospel and its ability to change life. Also, it does what no other power on earth can do. It forgives sins, it reconciles us back to God, and it assures us of our place in God's kingdom forever and ever. That's the transforming power of the gospel. You see, education can't do that, science can't do that, and even religion can't do that. Only the gospel of Christ can transform our lives. And it was so powerful that it changed the life of Paul. He was called Saul before, but he then God transformed him and gave him a new name, Paul. Saul was Christianity's first enemy, but he became Paul after encountering the risen Christ. Third, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is for everyone who believes. It is God's salvation for everyone who believes, the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Notice what Paul says here, that the gospel-saving power is somehow limitless and limited. It is limitless and limited. The gospel is, there's a limit in the gospel. It, It says it is for those who believe. Yes, it is limitless for everyone, but there's that limit for those who believes in the gospel. Now, what does it mean to the Jews first and also to the Greek? Paul tells us that this gospel is not just exclusively for Jews, but the gospel came to the Jews first. You see, it was promised to the Jewish prophets, then it was through the Jewish scriptures to a Jewish nation and about a Jewish Messiah. The Jewish people were the first recipients of the gospel, but then God did not intend it for them or to stay with them. God wants the gospel also to be preached to the world, represented by the Greeks. And lastly, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it reveals God's righteousness. For in it, the power of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But the righteous man shall live by faith, as it is written. You see, that's the theme of the book of Romans, the righteousness of God. Now, this righteousness may refer to God's righteousness or His perfect holiness. But here in this verse, 
Paul is talking about the righteousness we receive from God. It is about the righteousness that comes from God. In other words, the gospel of God is about God saving man from the wrath of God by making sinful humanity righteous. That is the gospel of Christ. It's about how humankind can be made right with God. You see, it is righteousness that we need, but that is one thing that we do not have. And Paul tells us again that this is the righteousness that we can receive only by believing. It is received through faith, and that phrase from faith to faith means we become righteous by faith from beginning to end, meaning we do not become righteous by faith and then maintain it through our own good works. It is from faith to faith. It is from faith alone and faith always. And now to prove his point, Paul also quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Through the righteousness revealed in the gospel, all men and women could be declared just in the eyes of God. And actually, this verse 17 is the verse that changed the life of Martin Luther. And that is what sparked the Reformation. The battle cry of the Reformation came from this verse, sola fide, by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone, not by baptism nor sacraments. We are saved by faith alone, but not by good intentions nor any good works. It is faith plus nothing. Now in closing, I know we have covered a lot. There are many things that we have discussed. I encourage you to review and have a discussion with your group and approach us also if you have further questions. Now in closing, let's go to the summary and application. Again, it's essential to apply the truth in our lives through obedience. Here is our lesson for today. Jesus Christ is the goodness of God. He is the real King, the rightful Lord, and the true Son of God. Therefore, let us not be ashamed of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes in Him by faith. Now, let me give you these points for application. And to help us remember, just uh, uh, remember A, B, C, D, E. First letter A is acknowledge. Acknowledge Jesus as your God, Master, and King. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, consider his life and his work, and you will find out that he is more than just a Jewish rabbi who teaches about good things. And Jesus Christ is more than just a miracle worker. You see, Jesus Christ is God himself, and he proved that through the power of his resurrection. Friends, that is the greatest news that you and I can receive. Christ has conquered sin and death once and for all. But then, you need to make that decision today. Here is the question. Will you acknowledge Jesus as your God? Or will you keep following other false gods? Will you serve Christ as your master and king? Or will you follow your own ways? Friends, choose this day whom you will serve. Either you pledge loyalty to Christ or reject him. But remember, every choice has a consequence. And for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, reflect on this question. If you say Jesus is your God and master, how do your choices and actions reflect what you confess? Brothers and sisters, our God knows who we are in public and in private. And may the Lord find us faithful. Let us return to God and renew our commitment to Him. And let us confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that let us proclaim that he is our master and king and prove it through our obedience. Next, letter B, believe. Believe in Christ by faith. 
The best picture to explain the meaning of believe is a picture of a marriage. When you marry someone, you say, I do to that person. And next to God, you promise to love that person with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when you said, I do to your husband and to your wife, you're saying that you will forsake all other love and you promise to remain faithful to your spouse until death. That's the meaning of believing in Jesus by faith. Now, here's the question for all of us. Will you say, I do to Jesus? Will you choose to love Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Will you forsake all other gods and only be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, Christ already said, I do to his bride, his church, when he sacrificed his life on the cross. And now, Christ is waiting for our response. What will be your choice? Let us see conviction. Let us grow in our understanding, appreciation, and conviction about the gospel. During my ordination, I shared this reflection on why I become a pastor. And here is what the Lord made me realize. During my first four years working as an engineer in Ayala Malls, Glorieta, I worked to help provide people with what they want, shopping, dining, and entertainment. And those are good things also. Then in my next four years in Manila Water, I worked to help provide people with their basic physical needs, water. And now as a pastor, I get to serve the Lord by helping people with their ultimate need, with their ultimate need, salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ and spiritual food for their souls. Now I am a pastor not because I'm perfect, wise or strong, but it's only because of God's mercy and grace that he chose me to be one of his instruments. Friends, as we study the book of Romans, I pray that you will do your best to maximize your learning and grow in your understanding and in your conviction. I encourage you to read the chapters in advance, study it, memorize it, and reflect and discuss with someone else or with your group. And specifically, study the gospel and its implications for your life. Now, what else would deepen your conviction about your faith? It's, about, it's when we hear stories and testimonies of people transformed by the gospel. And I remember the story of my friend. He was a young boy. Sadly, he was molested by a male family friend. And because of that, he grew up and became attracted to men and ended up having sexual relationships with the same gender. He lived that kind of life, but that only brought him emptiness and grief. But praise God, he heard the gospel and Christ transformed him. And today, God has blessed him with a beautiful family He's married to his lovely wife, and they have a son. And God is also using both of them, his, he and his wife, to minister to the sexually abused and to those who have broken relationships. Friends, this is the power of the gospel. This is the power of Christ. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, and he is our Restorer. Next, declare. Declare and preach the gospel. Regarding the gospel, Paul is obligated, eager, and not ashamed. And may we be like Paul. Let us not be silent about proclaiming Christ, and let us not consider it as a burdensome duty. Friends, reflect on your life during this pandemic. Are you more passionate about promoting a specific cure for COVID than preaching the gospel? And for this election period, are you more zealous in endorsing a presidential candidate than sharing Christ? May God help us. Of course, being healthy, uh, looking for a cure is, is good. Um, Desiring to have a good leader for our country is good, but then our seal and passion should be always for the glory of God, and it should overcome whatever earthly passions we have. We need to have 
that passion, that same passion that uh, Paul has, his zeal for the gospel. Last Resurrection Sunday, I had the chance to officiate a memorial service for one family, and I considered it as a privilege for two reasons. First, it is to show love to my friend and their family during their time of sadness. But the more important reason is the opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection. And that is a special event also because it's a Resurrection Sunday, and praise God for that opportunity. I'm not saying I'm always encouraged or I'm always passionate to share the gospel or evangelize. There are times that I'm, I'm afraid, I'm discouraged, I'm timid. But then I am praying and please pray for me that God would give me and give all of us that courage, that seal, that passion to proclaim and declare the gospel. And I encourage you to look for opportunities to share the good news of Christ and let us be eager and be willing and be ready to proclaim Christ either through one-on-one -on -one setting or through group meetings, or through informal chats, or formal gatherings. Of course, none of us will become, not all of us will become pastors, missionaries, and church workers, but God calls us into the different spheres of our influence and vocation. And like the Apostle Paul, God has set us apart and commissioned us to represent Him in the world. And so if you're a parent, you're a doctor, or an architect, an engineer, accountant, if you're a teacher, business person, or or whatever your occupation is, your primary calling is to represent Christ where you live, study, work, and play. And how do we do that? Let's do that by putting God on display through your words, proclaim Jesus. Also, represent Christ through your deeds by living out Christ-like love, humility, obedience, service, and sacrifice. The last, encourage practice mutual encouragement, and participate in mutual ministry. Paul wanted to encourage the Roman Christians and receive encouragement back from them. How about you? Who are you regularly encouraging in faith? If there's none, then find one. It can be your child, your spouse, or someone you know from church, and use whatever gifts that God has graciously given you to help others to strengthen their faith. And in the process, you will grow as well. See, I'm grateful for the Lord for that opportunity. As I reflect, back then in my mid-twenties, I'm part of CBCP's praise and worship team. And then God prompted my heart to teach some youth to play a guitar back then. So we met in practice at Room K in the Lion Church. I also met with other young men uh, for, for fellowship and discipleship. And today, it is my joy to see them serving the Lord in different capacities. And in fact, some of them are already more skillful than me. Mas magagaling na sila sa akin. And I love these people. You see, back then, I didn't know much about teaching. All I know is that I need to make myself available for God to use me. And I thank God for that privilege of building these young people up in the Lord. And I praise God for giving me that opportunity to be part of their lives. And recently, I also re received a gift from them and I appreciate their love. But more than the gift, what really touched my heart was the message that they wrote, and here is what it says. For the man who loves Christ and taught us how to be men through hymns and verses. And it really touched my heart. For me, it was just a simple way of devoting time, just teaching them week, week after week. But I never realized that um, God is using that opportunity to plant seeds in their hearts. And I praise God. And for all of us, whether we are a teacher, a life group leader, or a whatever ministry that we are in, remember that our work in the Lord is not in vain. And so, dear church, let us encourage one another, and God calls us to strengthen each other, 
in our faith in Christ. So for those of you who are not yet part of a group, find a life group or a journey group. And for some of you, perhaps God is calling you to start a discipleship group and lead others. It could be in your family, school, or workplaces. Now here in CBCP, we praise God for raising up godly men and women who are serving the Lord to establish us in the faith. And we'd like to thank and acknowledge our kids' ministry teachers, our life group leaders, our journey group leaders, all those who are ministering, particularly those who are doing these things uh, in the background. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And may you continue to proclaim the gospel as you make disciples, transforming lives and families, one person at a time, for the glory of God. And one more thing, dear CBCP family, I would like to encourage you to start attending our on-site worship service. Do your best to come and join us in our discipleship center. You see, God commands us not to give up meeting together so we can encourage one another. And we are to do this all the more as we see the day approaching. Yes, we have our online worship services. It's convenient and it saves gas. But that is not something that God intended for the church. You see, there is something different that happens when we meet face-to-face and worship together. And we worship God not only during the actual worship service, but we also honor the Lord even after the worship service through our fellowship, through our chats, through our connection with each other. So I invite you, come and join us. I know many of you are concerned about this pandemic, and I agree we have to do our best to protect ourselves and our loved ones. God calls us to be responsible and not reckless. But then we have to ask ourselves a deeper motivation, about our deeper motivation. Am I driven by faith or am I living in fear? Friends, let us hold on to God's promise that if we seek Him first in His kingdom and His righteousness, then all other secondary things will be added to us. And so may the Lord help us. Dear brothers and sisters, this is our lesson for today, and let us not forget. Jesus Christ is the goodness of God. He is the real King, the rightful Lord, and the true Son of God. Therefore, let us not be ashamed of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes in Him by faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful message that you have given us through the Apostle Paul, through his letter to the Romans. Thank you for opening our eyes that indeed the gospel is not about doctrines of theology, it's not about uh, propositions or statements, but it is about a person who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your perfect image, who showed us your love, your goodness, your righteousness, and your very heart, O God. Thank you, Father. Help us to know Christ more as we study the book of Romans. Help us to appreciate his life, his work, his suffering, his sacrifice. But more importantly, give us the encouragement and the spirit to empower us to follow him and obey him wholeheartedly. Lord, forgive us for many times that we have proclaimed Christ as our master, our king and Lord, but our lives does not add up. We pray that you help us to come back to you, to repent and uh, confess our sin and once more recommit ourselves to you. And for those of us who are yet to believe in Christ, give us faith to believe. Strengthen us, O Lord, and give us the courage to take that boldness and take that step of faith. Help us also, Lord God, compel us like Paul. Give us the heart, the zeal, the passion to be zealous for the gospel, the good news. Help us to work for you wholeheartedly and as we disciple 
people, young men and women as disciples, our parents, our groups, our students, help us to love them like Christ and help us to point them to Jesus Christ, to follow them wholeheartedly and establish them so that they may grow into Christ's likeness. Thank you, God. We pray that you continue to be with us as one church, as one family. We pray for our country. Guide us as we prepare for the coming elections. Help us to select godly leaders and be the one to move this nation forward. But more importantly, we pray for spiritual revival, Lord God, in our country. Awaken the hearts and minds of your people, of your church, and help us to be passionate for you, for your work. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. We pray also for those of us who are sick. We pray for your healing mercy. Touch us, O God. Make us whole. Help us, O Lord, to experience your your resurrection power, and in our suffer, suffering, help us to know you more and help us to have that hope that death and suffering is not the end, but we can look forward to the day when you will restore us, whether in this life or the life to come, that we will experience the resurrection power of Christ. Thank you, Father. Continue to grant us your presence, provide for our needs, grant us peace, and in everything, may you alone be honored and glorified in our lives. Thank you, Lord. Now, as you bow your heads, let me bless you with this benediction. As you go and preach Christ, may God's Spirit empower you with eagerness and boldness. And may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen and amen.